Dead Bodies is not for the squeamish and is intended for mature audiences. What kind of bread do you have? I have really good bread from bread. See, I'm, I'm struggling to talk. I have really good bread from uh, Baker's Delight, high fibre. Cape seed? Yeah. No, that's it's my favourite bread one. ever in the whole it's world. It's the best one. It's I know, really and it makes you poo like crazy. It's the yeah, best. Yeah, because it's got so many seeds in it. Nature's little brooms. That's my yeah. favourite toast ever. I love it. Are you recording? There's oh. so many reasons why are you recording? <laughs> Kirsten. We're talking about bread that makes you poo good. People about... Bad things. It's the best bread. I always get the bread with lots of seeds in it and it yes. makes you poo. I so agree. And every now and again I try a different seedy no, one no and point. then nothing is like the Baker's Delights um, Cape Seed Loaf. Okay. I'm doing a story. Okay. It's about a man called John List. Mm. Mm. He was born in Bay City, Michigan. List was the only child of German-American parents, John Frederick List and Alma Maria Barbara Florence. His parents have nothing to do with this shit, so I don't know why I put their names in there. But anyway, <laughs> there is parents. Uh, the, he was raised in a very devout Lutheran family and uh, he was a Sunday school teacher. Hmm. Hmm. In 1943, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and served in the infantry as a laboratory technician in World War II. After his discharge in 1946, he enrolled at the University of Michigan, uh, where he earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and a master's degree in accounting. Mm, gosh, mm. smarty pants. Yeah, nothing to see here. All good. In November 1950, as the Korean War escalated, List was recalled to active military service. Uh, at Fort Eustis, I think it is, in Virginia, he met Helen Morris Taylor, the widow of an infantry officer killed in action in Korea who lived nearby with her daughter Brenda. John and Helen married on December 1, 1951, mm -hmm. in Baltimore, Maryland, and the family moved to Northern California, where Liz served as an army accountant. Hmm. See what he did there? Yeah, Blended I do. Two. Hmm. Now we need to go to 1971, so we're Ooh. 20 years on. Yeah. Yeah. While his children were at school, he shot Helen dead. <gasps> what? What? That escalated? Mm. She was 46. He shot her in the back of the head. Then he shot his mother. Oh, see, it was relevant. That's why I wrote it at the start. What? Shot his he he what? shot his mother. Why? Yeah, Alma, 84, dead, right above the left eye. What? As his daughter Patricia, who was six... In the face. What is he doing? Yeah. As his daughter Patricia, who was 16, and uh, younger son Frederick, who was 13, arrived home from school, he shot each of them in the back of the head. He then made himself some lunch. Don't cry. No, I'm not crying. I'm oh. just shocked. Why did he yeah. do it? Made lunch. What did he have? Cape to, uh, okay, Baker's Delight, Cape Seed Loaf. We'll say Baker's Delight, Cape Seed Loaf. Something with a bit of roughage in it. He, lo he List drove to his uh, bank. He closed both his and his mother's bank accounts and then he went to Westfield High School to watch his eldest son, John Jr., who was 15, play a soccer game. Hmm. He then drove the boy home. And shot him repeatedly in the chest and in the no. face. Yeah. What? Hmm. So he's watched his son's soccer game knowing I've murdered everyone and he has said, 
nothing. He better not get away with this on grounds of insanity because it's so, gone on too long. He knows what he's doing. He shot his son repeatedly. Everyone else was just shot once. He shot his 15-year-old son repeatedly oh. because he resisted. So he just kept shooting him until he was no, dead. No, that's your dad. Hmm. That's your son. Don't now, they that. lived in a mansion. I don't know why, but they lived in this really big mansion in California. Liz placed the bodies of his wife and children on sleeping bags in the mansion's ballroom. What? Yeah. He left his mother's body in her apartment in the attic and in a five-page letter to his pastor found on the desk in his study, he wrote that he saw too much evil in the world. He had killed his family to save their souls. Buddy, have a look in the mirror. If you're looking for seeing evil... You're it, mate. He then cleaned the various crime scenes, carefully cut his own picture. This is smart. What did he do? He cut his own picture out of every family photograph in the house, turned a radio to a religious station and departed. Now, it's 1971. (laughs) They've only got to find the negatives. No, he got rid of everything and he cut himself out of every picture. It seems like a lot of effort. Wouldn't you just burn all the photos? I don't know. Yeah, nah, he's cutting. When anyway. my mum and dad got married, they had those, they were black and white photos, but they were colorized. They yeah. used to actually yes. paint the yes. thing. And they put, I never knew why when I was younger that mum was in color and dad was in black and white. Oh. It was as a, I, half and half in the they, one mum photo. Just wanted to be colored. No, apparently they put too much red on dad's lips and it made it look like oh. he had lipstick on. So mum had got a sponge and gone, whoop. And wiped, and wiped it off. the thing. Yeah. I was used to think, oh, what does that mean? My father's in black and white. Oh, Mum's in colour. Yeah. Now, all of this happened on November 9. The bodies were not found until December 5. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, part of that was due to the family's reclusiveness and refusal to socialise. And in part, it was also due to notes sent by list to the children's schools and part-time jobs stating that the family would be visiting Helen's mother in North Carolina for several weeks. He planned it all. He also wow. stopped the milk delivery, the mail delivery and a newspaper delivery. But neighbours sort of cottoned on to what was going on because they realised that the mansion's lights were illuminated Day and night, they were mm. always on, but there was no activity inside. I don't think they then, made those timers in those days. No, and then no. what happened was the lights started burning out one by one oh. and they knew that something weird was going on because they weren't being, weren't being turned off. They were just burning out. Oh. Now, a nationwide manhunt was launched. Police investigated hundreds of leads without success. All reliable photographs of List had been destroyed. The family car was found parked at John F. Kennedy Airport in New York City, but there was no evidence that he'd ever boarded a flight. 18... I feel like they're probably a bit loose with the old flight schedules and yeah, things in those probably. days. Yeah, the manifesto. Mm. 18 years later, on May 21, 1989, the murders were put on a Fox television program, America's Most Wanted, mm-hmm. which at the time had been on less on air for less than a year. Mm. So it was fairly new. We all know it now, but it's fairly new. The broadcast featured an age-progressed clay bust sculpted by a forensic artist, Frank Bender, which turned out to bear quite a close resemblance to what he was looking like in 1989. I wonder what they based that on, though. They just do it. You know how they do it with Madeleine McCann? Yeah, but they release those photos of what they think she would look like now. But they would have needed a photo of him at the time and he'd mm. taken them all. Don't know. Maybe his driver's license. Oh, no, they didn't have pictures of their licenses. Well, hmm. a woman was watching America's Most Wanted. I'm sure there were many women's watching America's <laughs> Most Wanted, but one of the women's, um, <laughs> she was watching. And when they showed that pi- that 
clay bust yeah. of what he might look like now, she thought, hmm, that looks like my neighbour. <gasps> really? Mm, but my neighbour's name is Robert Clark. And soon police worked out that Robert Clark was John List. And I'm suspicious of him because he's chosen a plain name. When Hasn't they choose he? a plain name, you know, they're trying to disappear. Well, List had travelled by train from New Jersey to Michigan and then he went to Colorado. He settled in Denver in early 1972 and took an accounting job as Robert Peter Bob Clark, which was the name of one of his former classmates. Huh? From 1979 to 1986, he was the uh, controller at a – he was the controller. I don't know what that is, Mm. at a paper box factory uh, outside Denver. He joined a Lutheran congregation and ran a carpool for for church members, pretty much. At one particular religious gathering, he met an army clerk clerk named Dolores Miller and he married her in 1985. Dolores. A comptroller is a management-level position responsible for supervising the quality of accounting and financial reporting of an organisation. Thank you. So he's in charge of other accountants by the sound of it. Uh, They moved to Virginia where List, still using the name Bob Clark, resumed work as an accountant. They presented all this irrefutable evidence to him, uh, including fingerprints, which matched List's military records. And then uh, with evidence found at the crime scene, he confessed to his true identity on February 16, 1990. Wow, that recently. At trial, List testified that he was faced with grave financial difficulties in 1971. He'd lost his job at the Jersey City Bank and to avoid sharing this humiliation humiliation, humiliating development with his family. He spent each workday at the Westfield train station reading newspapers until it was time to come home. He skimmed money from his mother's bank accounts to avoid defaulting on his mortgage. So hang on, he killed them all because he was embarrassed. Shamed, apparently. Shamed. Oh. He said he was also dealing with his wife's alcoholism and her untreated tertiary syphilis, contracted from her first husband and concealed for 18 years. Take her to the doctor then. Hmm. According to his trial testimony, Helen had pressured him into marriage by falsely claiming that she was pregnant, then insisted they marry in Maryland, which does not require blood testing to obtain a marriage license. Just say no, don't kill her. Yep. Uh, Although her health progressively worsened, she said nothing to list all her physicians until 1969 when a checkup revealed her condition. Anyway, he craps on pretty much saying that like his whole family. Somehow it's their fault. Yeah. 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 And it was all the family's fault, blah, 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 blah. A court-appointed psychiatrist testified that List suffered from obsessive-compulsive personality disorder and that he saw only two solutions to his situation, except welfare, which he just could not bear to do, or kill his entire family and send their souls to heaven. Oh, my God. Hmm. Welfare he saw as an unacceptable option, uh, so he... Again, he just didn't want to be embarrassed. Correct. He said he didn't want to be exposed to the ridicule and uh, of the family, pretty much. On April 12, 1990, List was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder. At his uh, sentencing hearing, he denied direct responsibility for his actions. He said, I feel that because of my mental state Mm. at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I asked all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding and prayer. 
They better throw the book at this guy. The judge was unpersuaded Good. that John List was yes. without... What was the judge's name, Dee Dee? Yes, correct. Yep. He I'm said not having it. John List is without remorse and without honour. He said after 18 years, five months and 22 days, it is now time for the voices of Helen, Elmer, Patricia, Frederick and John List to rise from the grave. He imposed a sentence of five terms of life imprisonment to be served consecutively, the maximum permissible penalty at the time. He filed an appeal on the grounds that his judgment had been impaired by post-traumatic stress disorder. So he's like, he's gone the financial route, hasn't worked out. He's gone the mental health route, hasn't worked out. Um, So he's saying he had PTSD from his military service. He argued that the letter he left behind at the crime scene, essentially his confession, was a confidential communication to his pastor and therefore was inadmissible as evidence. I didn't want to sound like I was poo-pooing PTSD because it's an absolutely valid thing, but I don't, in his case, no. Yeah. He said, I wish I'd never done what I did. I've regretted my actions and I've prayed for forgiveness ever since. He died... At age 82, good on March 21 of 2008, mm-hmm. at the time he was still in prison at, uh, in New Jersey. How's that shame thing working out for you, I mate, know. in prison? Right. Mm. He was uh, referred to later as the boogeyman of Westfield. The mm-hmm. house itself was actually destroyed in a fire in 1972. Uh, they don't know how that fire started, but just side note, in the ballroom where he left all the – Bodies. I want a ballroom. There was a Tiffany, like an original Tiffany glass hanging skylight. I hate Tiffany glass. Mm, well, do, you, do you like them, the colourful ones? Oh, I don't. Really. Um, and it was worth $100,000. <gasps> Gone. It would Goodness. have been worth about more than half a million dollars now. A if lot, it was still there. yeah. Mm. I don't know why they're so highly regarded. I don't like them. I prefer. I don't know what Just I prefer. I just don't like Tiffany lamps. They're too busy. There's too much going on. And I like a bit of, you know, chaotic decoration. Look at this craziness. It's on my phone. Breep, breep, breep. Who's ringing you? I don't know if I can say. It's a a snake catcher. A snake catcher? (laughs) I've got a snake catcher. What do you need a snake catcher for? It's not snake season. What? It's literally there's a snake catcher that I think is in court tomorrow and I oh. rang him to find out if he's actually in court and now I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast because I am still Is his, is that his name? I'm showing it to you. I can't I won't say it out loud in case it is. Shit, I can't remember. <laughs> and he does this thing. No, but I think no, that's okay. the one he's got an issue with. Oh. There's two snake fighters having it off oh. in court. Or not having it off, but like going at each other in court. And he keeps calling, then leaving a voicemail, then sending a text message, and he has done those three things twice. Oh, interesting. Mm. Anyway, he's just sent me a text saying I can call him any time up to midnight or Mm. at 7 tomorrow morning. Probably not something we'll be popping on the pod, but we'll... Yeah, Mm. anyway, just say it's a snake catcher. Okay, Anyway, I need to credit another one of my op shop books. Oh, great! Yes, original originally cost twenty seven ninety nine from from good bookstores. I got it for two dollars at an op shop, and it's called uh, Crime Scene Investigations, and the author's name is Vicky Petratus. Mm. So I read that um, and have based quite a bit of this on what Vicky wrote in there. It's a very good book, actually. I recommend it. Um, May nineteen ninety four. A dead body was found on the side of the road in Ararat, which is a town Ooh, in yes. Victoria, Australia. 
Australia. Australia. Uh, this particular body was a man in his 40s, early 40s. He was quite thin and pale. His top was sort of pulled up. Oh. His belt had been ripped apart and his pants were just down a little bit. Okay. He was wearing white runners. The right shoe was crushed so the sole had sort of partly torn off as yeah. it had been crushed. There was a big mark on his torso. His left cheek was grazed and his nose was broken. Uh, that was... I haven't put the date, so that's irrelevant. So, But the day before the body was found, Tuesday, May the 10th, 1994, a man by the name of Lindsay Jellett had been for his afternoon walk. Lindsay was 41 mm-hmm. and he was intellectually disabled. And he he, you know, he sound, just sounded like the sweetest man. Oh, really shame. sweet. Yep. He'd lived most of his life at what at that time was the Arradale Mental Hospital in Ararat, And one of his carers, a woman by the name of Tanya, who also sounded lovely, she became very concerned that he hadn't come home as expected from his walk and it was getting quite dark. She said it wasn't like him. He wore a watch. He could tell the time and he knew that dinner was at six and he liked his grub. Shame. Yeah. Now, Lindsay was a twin. And when he had been two years old, and do you know what? I, I did this myself when I had when my babies were, were little. When you go to cross the road, because you're pushing a pram in front sure. of you, you just don't think the pram goes ahead of you out yeah, into okay. the traffic. Before you can check to see if it's clear. And with twins, you either have a pram that's side by side or they're sort of ones in front of the other one, like a long ways. The snake catches messaged again. <laughs> Will you turn your phone over, please? Thank Sorry. you. The so the mum and I don't want to sound like I'm I feel feel sorry for the mum that this happened, but anyway, she came out from between two parked cars, pushed the pram out, it's horrible. and a van went oh, past and hit yeah. the pram. Mm-hmm. And Lindsay was in the front. He was hit by the van as he was only two. He was yeah. in a coma for nine weeks. Right. He suffered permanent brain damage, and his twin Judith, who was sitting behind him, wasn't hurt. In 1958, Lindsay was awarded £15,000 in damages because okay. of the accident and that was held for him in um, and administered by the Supreme Court. Yeah. So at the time of his death, that had grown to around about $120,000. Yep. From the age of seven, Lindsay had lived in the Arradale Mental Hospital. It closed in 1993. So some of the residents from the mental hospital were offered the opportunity to buy um, get together and buy a house in the town, yep. which they did. Um, and some of the staff would go and live there with them and keep an eye on them for 24 hours a day. And it would also help them to integrate into life outside of an institution. So $20,000 was taken out of Lindsay's trust fund to buy him a place in this house in Grano Street. In, I hope I'm saying it correctly. Be Grano Street, wouldn't it? Rest in Australia. Grano Street in Ararat. So he lived there with four other people who had disabilities yep. and then their carers who were with them. But apparently Lizzie was a bit of a favourite with the carers. Okay. Um, he did some work in a sheltered workshop and one of his favourite things to do was just walk around town. Uh, he didn't go very fast. One of his legs was a bit shorter than the other one. He was friendly, he was popular and he liked to walk down to the local golf course and collect golf balls. Cute. So just before 7 o'clock on this night that he'd gone for his walk – um, his carer, Tanya, called the police. She was really worried by this point. It was cold. It had started to rain. He wasn't wearing a coat. She knew he just had a fleecy top on and trousers. And he didn't have his medication with him. He took um, something called Tegretol twice a day mm-hmm. at 8 in the morning and 8 at night for epilepsy. And without that, he might have a seizure. 
So police came to the house in Grano Street and Tanya told them that Lindsay's twin, Judith, had been to see him earlier in the day. She'd taken him out for the day and she had dropped him back to the house at about 3.30. And then it was about 10 minutes after she dropped him back, he went out for this walk. Um, she also Tanya also told the police that Lindsay was a bit shy of strangers and that he might hide if okay. they approached. So Sergeant John Fisk started a search all around the town and sounds like they did such a good job of this. They It turned into a full-scale search. They had the SES, they had police yep. from neighbouring towns. They looked everywhere. By midnight, they still hadn't found him. So they called it off until 7 the next morning. At that time, they called in the air wing. The local radio stations had everyone on the lookout for Lindsay. Um, they tried to call Lindsay's sister, Judith, to let her know that he was missing, but she wasn't answering the phone. Uh, and they did think that it was possible that he might have tried, tried to make his way from Ararat to her house, which was in Melton, which is just under two hours away by car. Mm-hmm. Now, a local farmer had heard about the fact that Lindsay was missing and he was driving down a dirt track called Down Road and he saw a white shoe on the side of the road. And he, at first he drove past it, yeah, but then he just had that feeling. Feeling something's not right. Exactly. So he did yeah. a U-turn, went back. Saw the shoe, saw another shoe, saw a cigarette packet Mm. and then he saw the body Body. of a man who appeared to be dead. His mouth was open, he was white and there was blood on the side of his face. So he used his CB radio to contact a farm nearby because this is a very rural area. Um, And police were called in and they saw when they arrived tyre tracks leading up to the body. There were crush injuries on Lindsay's legs and torso. It looked like he'd been run over. So it very much at this point looked like Lindsay had been the victim of a hit run. So they blocked off down road, taped the whole area off, called in the accident investigation squad who are very experienced in this. So these two investigators, Denise Mears and Steve Wilson, they straight away knew that something was a bit off. Lindsay's body was lying straight. Now, they said if he'd been hit by a car and flung, most likely his body would be in an awkward position. There were drag marks where it looked like someone had moved him to that position and the fact that his top was pulled up a bit suggested that someone had grabbed him under the arms and pulled him along. Um, In a hit-run accident, the victim usually has injuries to their shin where the bumper bar hits and the hip where they hit the bonnet and then often on the head where they hit either the windscreen or the roof of the car. Lindsay had none of those injuries. Mm. Um, A person hit by a car often will have glass or paint or plastic from the exterior of the car and he had none of those. There's usually a lot of blood. There wasn't very much at all. And this is something you brought up in one of our very early episodes. Hit-run victims are usually knocked clean out of their shoes. Yes, it happens all the time. And the investigator, that was his name was Steve, he particularly, uh, Steve Wilson, he particularly knew that because one of the early cases he'd covered was a girl who was wearing high, I think they were Doc Martin boots, lace-up yep. boots, and they had stayed on her feet because... Okay. they were tied up so tight. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But apart from that, it was incredibly rare to see shoes still on them. So... It didn't look like he'd been hit by a car, but it did appear that he had been run over by a car. There was a tyre width bruise across his abdomen and the lower parts of his legs had severe crush injuries and there were smears of grease on him from the underside of a car. Mm. He had some burns where he'd probably come into contact with the exhaust pipe. They could see that the vehicle had reversed over him twice. Oh, there was some red fluid on Lindsay's runners, which they said was from an automatic transition. And because his 
belt had partly melted. They knew that when that with the car that it probably had a bit of that on its exhaust yeah. pipe. There was black grease on his body, they, which led them to believe it was probably an older car that would leak grease like that. So they called in the homicide squad and they tried to work out what Lindsay's final movements were. So they went to the home of his sister, sister Judith. Uh, she was upset, obviously, to learn of her brother's death. First thing they noticed was that all over her house were medicine bottles. Oh, shoot. They, and oh, they asked her about them and yeah. she, she knew, they said she spoke like a chemist. She knew every single oh, pill right. and what it did. She was taken to the police station and she told them that after their parents had died in 1986 and 1987, respectively, uh, she had been made administrator of Lindsay's estate. Okay. She went to see him every month. She said she took him things like cigarettes and lollies. Um, she said he rarely drank. They asked him, asked her specifically that because a beer can had been found in his body. Yeah. She said that alcohol made him fall asleep. Um, and there had, in fact, been an incident a few years earlier when Lindsay had been at her house. Okay. She had said she'd gone over to a neighbour's house to hang out their washing for them. I wonder if people still do that. My mum used to do it for yeah. Dawn Reedstyle, who lived over the back, and Dawn would do it for mum. Um and she said when she came back from the neighbour's house, Lindsay was feeling tired and wanted to lay down and then he had a fit. Okay. And they'd called an ambulance and she said at that time that he must have gone through her drawers and taken some pills. Okay. So on the day he went missing, she, she said she'd taken him to the uh, play the pokies at the local RSL. They'd then gone for lunch at the BP Roadhouse and she'd given him a 20 and a $5 note. That $5 note was actually found in his body. Um, she said they stopped at the chemist. She went inside to buy him some arch supports for his shoes. And when she came out, he was telling a lady who was passing by that he'd won money at the pokies. Oh. Uh, she said they were back at the Grano Street house at 3.45 and then Lindsay had gone off for his walk. Uh, she said she spoke to one of the staff at the house for a few minutes and then left. On the way home, she said that her car had overheated, so she stopped at a local mechanic. Um, she said she also stopped at a service station near her house, filled the tank and washed her car. And she said, I normally do that when I visit Lindsay. So the next day, after being told that Lindsay was not with us, she went yep. to play the pokies. Oh, good. Uh, actually, no, this is while he was still missing. Sorry. She's a murderer. Yep, she only knew that. She I see you stop knowing things. <laughs> stop knowing stuff. She killed her brother. Uh, this is while he was still missing before she knew he was dead. Yeah. She had a, she went to play the pokies. It was the of, washing the car bit that got me. Yeah. Wouldn't you go up it's if your too, twin was missing, wouldn't you go back fucking, to where they were and weird. help find oh, him? That's what I do. I just clean my car of all the remnants of my brother. Exactly. Um it had taken her three and a half hours to do that trip, which mm-hmm. I think takes one minute 47 according to Google Maps, according okay. to Google Maps. So they were wondering why it had taken her three hours. The accident investigators were able to get some tyre marks from the scene. So they were able to work out the car had done a couple of three-point turns along yep. the road, especially where the body was found. They established that Lindsay was most likely dead when he was run over because of the lack okay. of blood. And the injuries would, they said, were not certain to have killed him. Um, they said it was very unlikely that he had died from a seizure because usually when you have a seizure, the um, the bladdy, bladder empties, not the bladdy, there's not no the such bladdy. thing, the bladder empties and he had a full bladder. Okay. Um, so Judith now, thank you, Detective Vella, 
is a person of interest. She's the murderer. And the other reason is, who's the administrator of his estate, Chanel? Are we paying attention? The murderer. Right. Who's who's the last person to see him alive? The murderer. Who stands to benefit from his yeah. death? So police set up this roadblock on Grano Street, where the house is, and a man named William, who knew Lindsay, stopped to tell the police that he had seen Lindsay at about four o'clock on the day he died, getting into a car. He said the driver was a middle-aged woman Mm -hmm. and the description matched Judith Carr's and her tyres by this stage they had established matched the tyre marks from the scene. Her car was seized. They examined the underside. They found spots of blood. They found fibres that were matched exactly to his clothes. The burn mark on the exhaust pipe matched the burn on his belt. Why did she kill her brother? Money. That was it. I'm not up to that bit yet. Hold on. Sorry. They did toxicology tests on him and they found a drug called Noctec in his system. Now, he had never been described that, but Judith's children had been prescribed it about she five years him. earlier. She knows. She and as we chemicals. know, she keeps all medicines everywhere, all in the house. Yep. Um, and also she knew that Tegretol and alcohol could be fatal, a toxic combination. So the police surmised, and you can tell that I've, just directly copied that yep. either from Vicky Protasio's book or from online somewhere because would I actually write that word? I probably wouldn't. Um, they worked out that Judith had probably given him Noctec, or this is what they guessed happened, yeah. and then smothered him, they think, oh, which would leave no trace. Love. They didn't have any proof of that. They put that to Judith. She denied it. Sure. September 21, Judith, her surname is Segniz, I think it's pronounced, C-E-G-N-I-Z. She was arrested and charged with the murder of her twin brother. Isn't that horrific? Your twin, you had that story a few episodes back Mm. about twins doing... Yeah, people are shit though. But to kill your twin. Yeah, people are shit. And I know they're fraternal twins and I actually know fraternal twins who hate each other. Mm. They came out of the womb hating Hating each other. other. Like violently, the Mm. brother used to try and kill the sister. As two-year-olds, it was horrible. Um, They started a committal hearing in Ararat. The magistrate threw it out. Despite all the evidence linking Judith to the death scene, they had no proof that she killed him. Okay. So the Office of Public Prosecutions decided to take her straight to trial. Now, in the meantime, Judith was blaming her ex-husband, Ili Chifiriak. Chifiriak. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived in Queensland. She claimed he had come to Victoria, stolen her car from her driveway, oh, Christ driven alive. up to Ararat, ran over Lindsay, then returned the car to her house in Melton. Oh, God. And she didn't realise that whole time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, it was obvious there was no love lost between she and the ex. Right. He had been – so he was a Romanian immigrant. I, I don't know what he was thinking marrying her. But she had tricked him into paying all this money to him over the years, child okay. support. She, he was paying for her cleaner. He was just – and he didn't know our court system. And so he was just – whatever she said, you have to pay this. You've been ordered to pay like, this. He was like, okay. He was like, I'll do it. I'll do the right thing. He sounded like quite a decent guy. Um, and he also told police, and thought this was interesting, that he had once been hospitalised when he was married to her because she tried to poison him. Mm. And – he also told the police that Judith would often take money from Lindsay's allowance as much as $1,000 a month and used it to buy a thing for herself, for herself or to play the pokies. Um, he, needless to say, had an alibi checked out. He had been at the dentist. He hadn't been doing all those things she said he did. So they started the trial. 
but it started off very badly for the prosecution. There, um, Despite the evidence that Judith had this prescription for Noctec years earlier, there was no proof that she still had that medicine. They went mm. through a house. Yeah, but it doesn't they, mean that, he, that she exactly, killed him. Exactly, and they didn't have yeah. any proof that Even she, she still had it. if she drugged him, it doesn't mean that she killed him. And the prescriptions were from five years earlier. So the judge wouldn't allow the prosecutors to tell the jury that Lindsay had Noctec in his system. Yeah which is bang, Mm. prosecution, they would have been devastated. Uh, The judge also ruled that there was no murder case to answer Mm -hmm. because it was clear that Lindsay was already dead at the time Judith had run over him. So now this, I had to read this several times to make this make sense in my mind. You'll Mm -hmm. probably get it because you do a lot of court stuff. So the defence case was that Judith only lied about running over Lindsay because she believed that she had killed him by running over him. Okay, right. So she thought she had killed him. Yes. But he was already dead before she ran over him. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, In the end, the jury convicted Judith of the attempted murder of a dead man. Oh, okay, yeah. She got 10 years with a six-year non-parole period. She appealed the verdict and the sentence, but on June 23, 1997, Three Supreme Court judges in the Court of Appeal agreed that the jury had ample evidence to find her guilty, so they upheld the original sentence. Yeah. So she served a sentence. She was released in 2002, released Mm. from jail. And in 2004, an application was made to the Master's Office, which I've never heard of. Neither. Which that was the office that holds Lindsay's money. And surviving relatives agreed on how it would be divided, but we will never know who got what as the records are sealed. Wow. Mm. Amazing. Yep. Mm. That's cray. I know. It's a good book, that one. I've, there's there's another story in it that's upsetting me a lot. I'll tell you the name mm. of it again so you can keep an eye in your local op shop, Crime Scene Investigations by Vicky Petratus. Um, yeah, there's another one in it that I'm reading at the moment mm. that's almost upsetting me too much to talk about. Do you yeah. want a feedback? Yes, please do. Okay, I've got uh, – I think this is Eunice. I think. Oh, is that the one that's – yes, so the Facebook yes. name is Eunice. Yes. I just assumed that uh, yeah. it yeah. – uh, they were wondering if they could suggest um, – what? If I can su- – what? I was wondering, or can I suggest if you can feature the hanging coffin in my native country of the Philippines? Oh. So uh, – What are they called? The hanging coffin. The hanging coffin Ooh. is a Chinese custom that likely began in the 8th century when families would place the deceased into wooden coffins, which they hung on the side of cliffs. It's thought that more than 3,000 years ago, the bow people in China did this either to protect their bodies from animals or make them closer to heaven. Hmm. The coffins usually were made from hollowed out tree trunks um, and they were supported by wooden stakes stuck into the mountainside. Others were left inside caves tightly embedded into the face of the rock or set on top of the rock projections. So a little cliff bit that comes yeah. out. In 2015, archaeologists discovered 131 hanging coffins tucked into caves along a 330-foot-high cliff. They were determined to be 1,200 years old. Wow. They were probably placed there using pulleys and scaffolding. In the Philippines, where Eunice is from, the elderly feared being buried in the ground because they knew water would eventually seep into the soil and they would rot. they're me. Yes, yes. correct. And they wanted a safe place where their corpses would be safe. Yes, and did they want a bell in there? No. Oh. No. No. 
God, I'm getting your wrong side. Here's a quick feedback from Judy. Well, that'll not be quick. I might take a very long time. Hi, Dee Dee and Chanel. Nice things, nice things. Smiley face. Cute. Mm. Like it. A few years ago, my friend was checking her personal emails and asked me what I thought about a really strange one. At first, it looked like one of those phishing emails, Mm. except for a couple of strange things. It was from Nottingham Police in the UK, asking when was the last time she'd had contact with Debbie Starbuck, nay Cooper. Helen had met – oh, by the way, sorry, those coffins, suspended coffins. Mm. I clicked on the picture. Oh, I don't worry. no, they're fascinating. We'll oh, put it. We'll put it on okay. our, our socials. Um, Helen had met a Debbie Cooper on one of her adventures in Southeast Asia. They had travelled together for a while. They'd kept in touch, and Debbie had even stayed with Helen when she holidayed here in Australia. We did a quick Google, as you do, and found that Debbie had recently married a man named Jamie Starbuck, and was listed as a missing person. Oh. The short version is. And that's Judy making it shorter, not me. Uh, Jamie had married Debbie, murdered her, oh. disposed of her body in his backyard incinerator, took over her Facebook page and email account and £65,000 of her savings, then merrily travelled the world writing a blog along the way. Oh, what? Why are they contacting her about it? Well, they're obviously trying to piece together bits of it. I don't what. The blog is called Diary of a Misanthrope. It is a must-read insight into the mind of this disgusting human being. There are no words to describe this despicable man. I found the blog shortly after reading the police email and recognised the chilling reality that something was very wrong. Of course, the police were onto him via the blog. The last post Jamie wrote even said he was coming home. Police arrested him at the airport. He confessed to the murder... Her body has never been found. Wow. And Judy's given us some links, so we'll share those on our Facebook page as well. Crazy. We have a very busy Facebook page, aren't we? Mm. Uh, and you can read the full version of the story. Wow. Good That's heavens. Crazy. Mm. Well, wow. That's a very high standard for stories. It is. They don't have to be. We'll take your lame dead we'll body stories. We'll take anything. Stories. We will. You know what to do. Deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com. Dead Bodies is created by D.D. Dunleavy and Chanel Vela and produced by Kirsten Lim Howe. Contact us at deadbodiespodcast at gmail.com.